Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take God's word in hand and open to the second chapter of Romans. We're studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. We come today to verses 11 through 16 is our text here in chapter 2. We're in the middle of a section of the book of Romans. And overall, this treatment, this doctrine that's emphasized is the fundamental, bedrock, essential Christian doctrine of justification by faith. Now that word justification is a legal term and it should not surprise us because the Apostle Paul was thoroughly trained in the Old Testament law. Um, He spent a good portion of his training uh, trying cases. And in in the first section, he lays out the case that all of humanity is guilty of violating God's law and therefore all stand guilty and deserving of God's just wrath. Paul views himself as the instrument through which God is calling all of humanity into a courtroom. God, of course, is the judge, and uh, Paul is the prosecuting attorney, and he's laying out the case against a large group of people. Uh, In fact, against the largest group of people possible, everybody, and everybody is standing guilty. So he divides humanity, though, into two groups, as we'll see today. Those who had the law, that is the written law, the Jews, and those who did not have the written law, the Gentiles. But his conclusion is that both Jews and Gentiles alike are without excuse and stand equally guilty before God. Now, Paul is no novice. Uh, He's not a newcomer. He has had enough experience to know that when you accuse such a broad group as the entire human race, that there's bound to be objections that arise. In fact, if you know anything about the legal system, or if you at least watch courtroom dramas on television, You know that when a prosecuting attorney makes a strong point, the defense attorney is bound to stand up and say what? I object. And so Paul is anticipating the objection of both Jews and Gentiles who hear this message. In our text this morning, he goes on to show why those objections are invalid and really inadmissible in God's court. Now to understand Paul's point of view, we have to remind ourselves of some basic truths about the way God's judicial system works. And first and foremost, we have to be reminded that God will judge humans, won't he? He states so in both testaments of his scripture. Perhaps the clearest and most succinct verse on that truth is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which says, and it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So the thing to note about God's judgment is that it is universal. Its universality means many um, believe that they're going to be exempt. Many of Paul's peers in the Jewish community believe they were going to get a waiver or an exemption from God's judgment by virtue of their Jewishness. It's also based on truth, speaking of God's judgment. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything and therefore he can't be deceived. Even the most uh, qualified human judge can be duped. We've found that out in recent years with the advent of DNA testing. There have been a lot of people who were convicted of terrible crimes before DNA testing who now have been exonerated. And so the judge and jury and even entire state governments have had to apologize to people and settle, settle civil lawsuits because of false imprisonment. 
It's a terrible thing when an innocent person is convicted of a crime they did not commit. God can't be duped, can't be deceived. He knows everything we've said, done, and taught. As we saw last week, our judgment is going to be based on our deeds. The books will be open. All the things that we've done and said and thought are going to be on full display. And it's going to be a great time of fruit inspection. And God is going to inspect our lives and judge accordingly. But ultimately, God's judgment is based on righteousness, his righteousness. That is, the punishment will fit the crime. He's not going to do anything that's unjust or unfair. No one is going to be able to say on that day, you're being unfair to me. God is righteous. Now, in Romans 2.11, we see another word that is helpful in describing the way that God judges humanity, and that is the word impartiality. The title of today's message is The Impartiality of God's Judgment. Let's begin in chapter 2, verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and reading of this, his word. Now, the truth of God's impartiality when it comes to judging humans can either be taken as good news or bad news, depending upon your perspective. In verse 10, to the Gentiles, it's good news. Look what he says. Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's saying, Gentiles, you can get in on salvation as well. That salvation is just not for Jews. So to the Gentiles, that's good news. But then... In verse 9, it's bad news because he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of mankind who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He's saying you're not exempt from God's judgment just because you didn't have the written law. So let's look at how Paul answers the anticipated objections, first from the Gentiles and then from the Jews. It all begins with the concept of Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, the concept of Revelation. Revelation as a concept is God's making known to man his nature and his purpose. Theologians sometimes call revelation the light that each person is given about God. So man left his own devices, as described in the Bible, as groping about in darkness. That is, he would never find God on his own unless God had revealed himself to man. And that's exactly what God has done. Now that is not to say, note this, that every human being has the same degree or amount or intensity of light. We know that experientially is not true. Some people are born into Christian homes where there's 10 Bibles in the house. Some people are born in, in the heart of the jungle where their ancestors are worshiped. So not everybody has the same amount of light, but the point is that everyone has the light that God has chosen to give them. And so he divides again humanity into two groups. Those who have the light of the law written down on tablets and those who don't. Let's begin with the light of those without the law. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Who are those 
Paul describes as being without the law. Note here he's talking about written down. These, of course, are the Gentiles. We know, according to the Old Testament, that in his sovereignty, God chose only one nation that he called his own, through which he conveyed the written law and through which he sent the Messiah, and that is the nation of Israel. Everyone else are Gentiles, those who he describes as without the written law. And so he anticipates an objection coming from the Gentiles on the day of judgment. We can't be judged, God, because we didn't have the law. You only gave the law to the Jews. We didn't have it written down, so therefore we're exempt. Paul's answer, of course, is while Gentiles may not have access to God's written word, they do have revelation. God has revealed himself to all people. We divide that revelation that God has given to the Gentiles into two categories. The internal witness that is within us, the light that God has within us, and then there's the external witness, those things we observe about God through the senses. First of all, the internal witness. Last summer, we preached a number of messages in the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. I did not choose to preach a sermon from Proverbs 20, though maybe I should have. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. So God declares that he has implanted within every human consciousness a knowledge of himself. Man is born not a blank slate. Man is born with the knowledge of God, no matter what your freshman year psychology professor might have taught you. Man suppresses the truth that he knows, but the knowledge of God is there from birth. Another way of saying it is that the work or purpose of the law is written on our hearts, even though we might not have it in a book form. That's the internal witness. We know there's a God. Secondly, there's the external witness. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 20, that God has revealed himself through creation, through nature. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's not vague. It's crystal clear from what God has made being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. So when he says that through what has been made, he's speaking of his creation, the world around us, newborn infants, trees, birds, oceans, fish. They reveal his attributes and power. Now this kind of revelation we said is called general revelation because it's available generally to all people. Wherever you live in the world, whether it's Australia, or north of the Arctic Circle, if you have your senses, you can observe God's creative power on display. But rather than that creative power in nature leading people to bow their knee to God, it had the opposite effect. Paul says they began to worship the creature rather than the creator. And we see this historically. Anthropologists tell us all over the world. We find people worshiping rocks and rivers and the sun, the moon, that's exactly what Paul said happened. Many people are animist. That is, they see in inanimate objects like rocks and mountains a spirit. Many are pantheists, which they think God is everywhere. God is an impersonal being. He's everywhere in every molecule. All of these things can be summed up with one word, idolatry, which God hates. In fact, you might recall that the two first commandments that God gave Moses were about idolatry. Prohibitions against it. So, so now, in the person without the written law, the Gentile, 
this internal witness and this external witness manifest themselves in a number of ways. Look at verse 14 here in chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So in at least two ways, the Gentiles give themselves away as having no excuse. Number one is they sometimes obey God's law. They want to say, well, we didn't know the law. Then how could you obey it sometimes if you didn't know it? Here's what I mean. We live within 15 minutes of one of the world's great international airports. And if you have a valid passport, you can get on a plane over at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and go to any country on planet Earth, and you can visit any culture on planet Earth, and you're going to find some things are true in almost every culture. Number one, parents are going to love and nurture their children. They didn't have to be taught that. They know what God says in their heart is true, that children are a blessing from the Lord, and they love their children. Uh, that's why most cultures have such strict laws against child abuse. It's because they know it's against nature. It's against what's written in their heart, not to provide for their family. Almost every culture has a prohibition against killing the innocent, murder. Most of them have prohibitions against stealing. So the question is, where did that knowledge of right and wrong come from? If man's a blank slate, why do we find certain things common to every culture? It's because God put it on their heart. And you know that's true here locally. Many of your neighbors uh, across the fence don't claim to be Christians. Many of them come from other countries, come from other cultural backgrounds, but they're good neighbors. You'd rather have them watching your house while you're gone than some of your so-called Christian neighbors. They pay their taxes, they keep the yard up. They're even generous and kind sometimes. That's what Paul says. When the Gentiles instinctively do what the law says, they show that they're not a blank slate. They show that they're without excuse before God, even though they've never perhaps read the Old Testament. But I think the thing that really gives them away is that they have an active conscience. You remember that the human conscience is that God-given internal mechanism that tells a person either the rightness or the wrongness of their behavior. Paul says here their thoughts either accuse them, that is they tell them what they're doing is wrong, or it excuses them, tells them what they're doing is right. So the fact that they know there's a difference between right and wrong tells them they're without excuse. Now, the conscience uh, has to be monitored closely, can't be trusted inherently because the conscience can be muffled, the Bible says, or stifled or even covered altogether through reputed, repeated abuse and sin. Um, the term stiff-necked was used in the Old Testament to describe people like this. It's an agricultural term where you'd have a, a draft animal, an ox or a horse, and he would balk, wouldn't want to keep plowing. And so that farmer would have a sharp stick and he'd poke him in the neck and the flanks and get up. Now the first hundred times or so when he did that, it hurt. And so he kept going. But over time, he developed a callus. He became stiff-necked. And so he no longer was sensitive. Our consciences can become like that. We can cover them over. They're still there, but we're no longer sensitive to them. That's a very dangerous condition because the conscience is our internal warning system that when ignored often leads to calamity. Paul's point is that Gentiles have not have the excuse, will not have the excuse on the day of judgment that they didn't know about God or his standards. He's written it on their hearts 
And every time they obey the law, instinctively, they prove that. It's revealed in nature, and their own behavior and conscience testify to their guilt. That's the Gentiles. They're without excuse. Now let's turn to those with the law, the Jews. Paul anticipates their objection. The Gentiles are going to say, we didn't have the law, can't judge us. But the Jews are also going to have their own exception, their own objection, and it goes like this. God, aren't we your chosen people? We read the law out loud in the synagogue every Saturday. Certainly you won't judge us. Well, look at verse 12 again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is the light of those with the law, the Jews. Now, I said two weeks ago that the key word in understanding this entire chapter is a little three-letter English word, all. And here it appears again. We had a little boy baptized this morning, and when I sit in my office with children especially, I'm trying to help them understand the severity of their sin. We'll read Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we talk about sin and what sin is. And, and then I'll say, you know that word all? And they'll say, yes. I said, how many does that include? And they say, everybody. I said, does that include mama? Yes. Does that include brother Keith? Yes. Does that include you? Yes. So even a child, rightly taught, can understand this concept that we're all sinners and so Paul is laying out all humanity under that covering of that word all. He says, all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles, will perish. All who have the law, the Jews, will perish. That's what's common with them. They both will be judged. Some had the law, some had the law written in their hearts. They both sin, and therefore all will be judged. Now, for many of Paul's Jewish friends, that was simply a bridge too far. The idea that they would be judged alongside these pagans, these Gentiles, was incredibly offensive to them. By the way, that truth was offensive in Jesus' day when he taught it. And it offended the Pharisees that came out to hear John the Baptist in the wilderness. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians calls it a stumbling block they couldn't get past. They tripped over it every time. I've got to be contrite. I've got to come the same way a Gentile was. And they just could not... In would not believe it. They prided themselves on their perceived exceptionalism and standing before God. And friends, come close and hear this. This is why humility is a prerequisite to anyone's salvation. The Bible says that God resisteth the proud. He stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isn't that what every sinner needs, grace? The free gift of forgiveness of sins. And he seems to indicate that a person cannot be saved unless they're humbled. We finished last week's sermon with a parable that sounded a lot like that, didn't we? The two men that went down to pray. One was self-righteous, the Pharisee. He stood up and said, Lord, I'm grateful that I'm not like that guy. And then he began to list his achievements one by one. And then there was the guy that could not even lift up his head. He was so humbled, he said, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that's the guy that went home justified. There's that word, right with God, forgiven. Not the guy that was self-righteous or had a list of achievements. Humility is a prerequisite to salvation. So in reality, 
rather than having the written law, which the Jews did, giving them an excuse out of judgment, Paul seems to be saying that their guilt is compounded, intensified, because they had the law and didn't obey it. Well, that's not just Paul's opinion. Those are almost identically the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Do you remember? Then he began to reprimand the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. That is, they had this light of God in the flesh performing miracles, and they said, eh, that doesn't impress me. Here's what he said to those cities. Woe to you. That's a curse. Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, the two wickedest cities they ever lived, on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to hell. For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So when Jesus says, speaking of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for some than others, what does it tell us? It tells us that another way in which God judges is according to the light we're given. Remember I told you some people had more light than others. So having more light it's not an advantage to you if you don't repent. And I've often said, I think one of the most dangerous places for a lost person to spend time is in this church, if you're not willing to repent. Because you hear this message of salvation by grace and Christ's wonderful work on the cross and his suffering on your behalf, and you reject it and reject it and reject it, and one day you die and you stand before God, there will not be a less judgment for you. I think you're going to have a more severe judgment. Just like these villages that saw the miracles of Jesus and did not lead them to repentance. And don't forget, we're speaking of those with the written law, the Jewish people, don't forget that in addition to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament Levitical law, they also had the internal witness and the external witness of nature. So they had all the revelation that God's ever given a human being. And for most of them, they still did not repent. And so they're going to say, Lord can't judge us. Paul says, you have the stricter judgment. Why? Verse 13. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Very few people had their own private copies of the Old Testament. They were expensive to make and they had to be handwritten. And so if, if a synagogue was fortunate, they had one scroll and they would come in on Saturday with great pomp and circumstance and ceremony and they would parade the law in in that scroll and hold it high and someone would be chosen to read. Remember Jesus one day was chosen to read from the law. What a great honor that was. And that's why they valued education so much and why our culture traditionally has valued education. Not so that we can read the Bible and dismiss it, so that we can read the Bible and repent of our sins. But rather than them repenting, when the law was read Saturday after Saturday, they continued in their sins, believing they were self-righteous. That's why Paul says it's not those who hear the law read who are righteous, but those who do the law. And by the way, who does the law? What does Paul say in Romans 3.20? By the works of the law will no flesh 
be justified. That's the point. That's why God gave us the law. He said to close every mouth so that we compare ourselves to it. We look in the mirror of the law and we say, I fall woefully short. I'm in trouble. I'm in desperate need of a savior. And if you will humble yourself before the Lord like that tax collector, say, Lord, I agree with my assessment. I am a sinner. Then he will save. Not the hearers of the law, the doers of the law. So Paul answers the objections, doesn't he? Very well, I think, of both those who had the law, the Jews, and those without the law. And the summary point is all men are without excuse. But he's not done. Here's the kicker. The person who's going to do the judging is Jesus. Look at verse 16, chapter 2. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. On that day, he says. That's an eschatological future certainty. Remember we said there's two kinds of wrath presented here in the first two chapters of Romans. In chapter 1, it's the ongoing anger against sin. God is anger against all sin all the time. It's being revealed every day in nature. But there's also coming a day in which final judgment will come, when the books are open. And remember we saw last week, for those who continually receive God's benefits and blessings, which are designed to lead them to repentance, and yet they harden their heart, they stiffen their neck, they do not bow the knee. Paul says what you're doing every time you're sin and God doesn't kill you and you don't repent, you're accruing more wrath and more wrath for that day of eschatological judgment. And he's speaking of that day here in verse 16. And he says, on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, some people hear that, that Jesus is going to be the one judging. And they go, Whew. that was a close one. Because they have this image in their mind of God the Father as a big meanie, right? He's the one that kills armies in the Old Testament, sends calamity and plagues and throws thunderbolts from heaven and drops anvils from the clouds. That's their image of God the Father. But God the Son, He rescues God's image. He's gentle, kind, walking around in flowing robes, flashing the peace symbol to everybody. And they think that that's who Jesus is. But he says Jesus is going to judge even the thoughts, the secrets of humanity. And Paul says he's so certain of this, he says this is according to my gospel. Now, first eight or ten times you read that, that sounds sort of arrogant, doesn't it? What's Paul mean calling the gospel his gospel? This is the gospel of Jesus. This is about Jesus. Pastor, you always tell us he's the hero. He is. But Paul has been so affected and changed and transformed by the gospel that it's become his. He was a sinner, just like he's preaching to sinners who felt like he was exempt from God's judgment until one day God struck him blind, told him otherwise. And he was so thankful for the rest of his life that he spent every day telling others the truth. And so it's his gospel, the one he teaches everywhere he goes, one that he's been changed by. He's not ashamed of it, he said in the first chapter. But he wants them to know Jesus will judge. He said, wait a second, that's not the Jesus I read about in the gospel. We preached through the gospel of John, the gospel of Luke. 
wasn't anything about judgment. He's called the Prince of Peace. He said he came to seek and save the lost. What do you mean he's going to judge? Well, maybe you've forgotten John 5, 22, when Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I think that is the greatest endorsement of the doctrine of the deity of Christ in the whole Bible. There are those to this day who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I talked to a man recently. I asked him, who do you think Jesus is? He says, he's a great man, wonderful person. Jesus is not just a great man. He's God. God would never entrust the judgment of all humanity to a man. Why? Because if he's just a man, he's a sinner too. He's not qualified. And remember, Paul says God is ultimately qualified to judge righteously because he's omniscient. Even the best earthly judge is not qualified to judge all of humanity's thoughts. Jesus is because he's God. And if someone says Jesus never claimed to be God or the New Testament never claimed Jesus was God, point them to Romans 2.16 and a multitude of other verses that say the same thing. I think one of the greatest uh, teachings in the Bible about this judgment and who Jesus is, is in the book of Revelation. This time, yes, the book, not the concept. So turn, turn, if you will, to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 19. And as I often say, the Apostle John, I think, received the greatest privilege any human ever received, and that he was transported supernaturally into the very throne room of heaven. And he saw how the world is going to end. And he saw how God's going to make all things new again. And he was told to write down what he saw. In Revelation 19, he writes down what he saw about the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. Revelation 19, 11, John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's a war horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Remember, God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so this is Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, the armies which are in heaven, Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. Wait a second. Jesus is leading an army. An army goes forth to battle. That's right. Jesus is Prince of Peace. And yet he's coming to wage war. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he pulled his sword out the night he was arrested? Put your sword up. He that lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. In fact, he said of all of his disciples, if my kingdom were of this world, they would have fought. But now's the time for the armies to come. Now's the time to wage war. Now's the time of judgment. So he has his army following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs and on his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the Jesus of the Bible. That's Jesus. He's going to judge the secret things of men's heart. And friends, how is it with you? What about you? Now, if you are a guest here today, this statement I'm about to make may be unfamiliar to you. 
But if you're a regular attender, you know we say it all the time here. We remind each other this simple truth. And I think it is the summary line of all of the book of Romans. You ready? We're all going to die. We don't know when, so you better be ready. I think all of us that I've talked to have been reminded of that in the last 18 months. We've all been reminded of our own mortality. We know people who, as far as we knew, were healthy. And we get a call that they've died, sometimes very suddenly. God is not ungracious or unfair. In fact, every time we sin and breathe another breath, it's a manifestation of His mercy. And Jesus says, when you hear things like that, don't think they were more unrighteous than we are. The Bible says, unless we repent, we'll all likewise perish. That's what we all deserve. But God is merciful and slow to anger. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent. But Paul says, don't take lightly the mercies of the Lord. Because when we sin and we don't repent, we're piling up wrath for this eschatological future where Jesus in his role as king and judge will reveal every secret of our hearts. The books are going to be opened and the truth will be known. So the question is, we're all going to die. We don't know when, so we better be ready. How can we be ready? That is the right question. Thank you for asking it. How can we be ready? There are only one way through faith alone in what Christ has accomplished in our place. It's not by having a great fourth quarter. Maybe your favorite college team was losing and all looked lost and they rallied in the fourth quarter and won the game. That will not happen to any person. <laughs> Don't wait until you've spent three quarters in sin and say, I'm going to make up for all that in the fourth quarter of my life. You can't. It's impossibility. Because it's not by works in which we're saved. It's not by giving away all of our money we've been greedy for all of our life at death and clearing the ledger. The only way we can be ready to die is to know that Jesus took our place on the cross through substitutionary atonement. And we've appropriated that gift by simple, hear this, humble faith. Not faith plus my resume, faith plus nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. That is the only standing that, that any person, Gentile or Jew, religious or irreligious, PhD in theology or absolutely illiterate. Paul says all are without excuse. We all have the revelation of God implanted in our heart. We all have a conscience and Almost everyone you and I know has multiple copies of this book which tell us who God is and what his expectations are. And what we find when that light is on in our heart and we respond to it is that we're guilty. God's assessment of us is true. Paul's indictment in Romans is correct. None of our objections hold any water. They're all inadmissible to court. And so we're in a courtroom and it's clear you're guilty and everybody there knows you're guilty. The smart thing to do is to throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. That's what evangelism is. It's pointing people, holding up a mirror of the law and saying you're guilty. 
but the hope you have is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and I think he's including there all the elements of the gospel, you will be saved. And then he goes on to say a few verses later, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, it's, it's harsh. Everybody on planet Earth is guilty. No one has an excuse. No one will have a valid objection. That's what your word says, Father, and we believe it to be true. We know that you drudge righteously. You'll not be unfair in any way, and yet Paul is very clear. Those with the law will perish if they don't repent. Those without the law will perish if they don't repent. Father, I don't want that for anyone I know. So I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice today that if anyone here is trusting in anything but the shed blood of Jesus for their future. Father, if anyone here believes that on the day of judgment, if there is such a thing, they'll be able to negotiate. They'll be able to raise enough objections that they'll get a waiver. They'll get an exemption. Maybe they'll say, my granddad was a pastor my father, a deacon, went to church three times a week for 80 years. Father, none of that is a valid objection. By the works of the law will no flesh be justified. So Father, I pray you'd convict now of personal sin and guilt, your righteousness and the judgment to come by your Spirit. Would you draw many to saving faith? Father, would you start a revival in this church? May it extend to this city, our state, our nation, and the world where you draw throngs of people into saving faith. Do it for your namesake. Do it for your glory. We'll give you all the credit and honor when it happens. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.